This is the Church Security Made Simple podcast, giving leaders practical solutions to help make your community safer. I'm your host, Simon Osmo, and I'm on a mission to keep his churches safe. Now, it's been over 10 years since the Lord called me into security ministry, and as a national church safety practitioner supporting churches across the country, I'll share my expertise to give you simple solutions to keep your church safe. So if you're ready to make your church security simple, come join me and let's dive into this week's episode as we learn how to plan, prepare and protect our ministries. Welcome to a Church Security Made Simple podcast. If you are a first time listener, welcome. And if you haven't yet, please go to show notes grab my free download, which is my seven-step plan for church safety and security leaders. And it's based off my book, Securing at Church Operations. Now, without further ado, let's dive straight into this week's subject on emergency management. Now, depending when you are listening to this podcast, I recently just presented this at the Church Facilities Expo in Dallas. Now, today's theme is how to leverage a building emergency plan to protect your church. Now, I want to start off with a question. Why does preparedness matter? Well, in today's world, I'm not here to convince you that you need emergency preparedness. I'm here to tell you that you need to be prepared. Now, if we look back to 2020, when we had the lockdowns across the world, I don't believe anyone was prepared for the global pandemic in 2020. And then in 2017, I've got to know the former pastor of First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, Texas, Frank Pomeroy. They had an active shooter where an active shooter entered a Sunday service and tragically took 26 lives, including the pastor's daughter. They were not prepared for the incident and they were not prepared for the post-incident as well. Frank tells numerous stories of journalists trying to get inside his home, so they weren't prepared for that human disaster. And then finally, during the 2020 George Floyd race riots, a 249-year-old church was burned to the ground in California as a result of the race riots. Who would have thought that race riots in Minnesota would have affected the West Coast where a 249-year-old church was burnt to the ground? Where did that church go to worship? How did they recover post that incident? Now, I like to tie... My conversations in to scripture and John 16, 33. If anyone knows this, please let me know. It's not a common scripture used for safety and security, but here's why I like it. John 16, 33 says, For in this world you will have trouble. It is telling us that we are going to have trouble in the world. We are going to have global pandemics. We are going to have active shooters. We are going to have lost children. We are going to have adopted children. For in this world you will have trouble. Now, today's conversation, I'm going to focus primarily about emergency response, which is about how do we as humans respond to those emergencies. But under the operational resiliency, if you like, there's three other buckets, which I'm just going to mention, but they're not. Well, I'm not going to cover these today. So the first one is business continuity. You might not be familiar with the term business continuity, but this is how do you get back online? when your systems go down, when your um, vendor changes, or when you can't resume business operations? How quickly can you get back to business as usual, if you like? The second one 
is then disaster recovery. How do you recover IT when your server goes down? Now, a lot of the larger churches have their own servers. When your server goes down, how do you recover the IT? What is your return to operations time where you can say that everything is back working as normal? And then the last bucket is crisis management, which is how to manage through the crisis. We've got business continuity, disaster recovery, crisis management, and then the fourth bucket, which is what we're going to cover today, is emergency response. But I wanted you to know the sort of the holistic view, if you like, of operational resilience. So let's talk then a bit about emergency preparedness. So today, I'm going to give you three things that you can do today which is going to improve your resiliency around emergency preparedness. Remember, focusing on that last bucket, the, the sort of human element. So I'm going to give you three things that you can do today to improve your resiliency around emergency preparedness. So the first one is identify all your potential emergencies and rank them by most likely to occur. Now, I'm still amazed when I talk to churches and nonprofits across the country they haven't yet identified their risk universe or their threat universe, so to speak. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is that they haven't written down all the things that could go wrong so they can then work on, well, what is our plan to recover? What is our plan to go through these incidents? So the first step you really want to do is identify all the things that can go wrong. There's two emotions that church leaders operations leaders, facilities, and volunteers tell me across the country when I work with them is, Simon, I feel overwhelmed, and Simon, I'm so stressed. Then lastly, I don't think this is a role for me. I think I need to serve in different ministry, or I need to look for another job. And most often, most often is because we're working without a plan. So the first thing I tell people to do is identify all your potential emergencies and rank them by most likely. And I'm going to tell you in a few moments why we rank them by most likely. But let's start off by getting our risk universe. What are those things that go wrong? So let's start off with natural disasters, tornadoes, fire, hurricanes, floods, earthquakes, droughts. Write down every natural disaster that you can think of on a piece of paper, um, on your laptop, iPad, whatever it is, but write down all those natural disasters, anything that can happen to you in your church. The next thing you're going to do is do the same with human capital. What are those human-caused disasters, the, the big ones that are in the news? Mass violence, acts of terrorism, shootings, bomb threats, hostage situations, uh, explosions, chemical spills. What can a human walk inside your church and do which is going to have an adverse effect? So we've got the natural disasters, then we've got the human-caused disasters, then we're going to move on to the technological hazards. These are things like hardware failure, information security, someone stealing your data perhaps, loss of connectivity, a vendor failure. You've got someone who's giving you services, supporting your server perhaps, and then they go down. How quickly can you get back online when, you, when you're in the middle of a Sunday service? What does anything controlled by IT, if it was to go wrong, have an adverse effect on your church? What would it look like? So write all those down as well. Then we have what I like to say, the other bucket. So we've got things like infectious disease, COVID-19. And we've also got things like emotional health. If I said Ferguson 20, um, I believe 2014, if I've got my, uh, my memory surgery right, I've actually written this down. Uh, Ferguson 2014, I think that's when they had some more race riots down there in relation to a police uh, shooting of an African-American male. 
Sutherland Springs, Texas, as I, as I mentioned, you've got these other style incidents which sort of fall into that bucket. So write them down, write anything down you can think of that could go wrong. So what we've done now is we've identified our risk universe, our threat universe, and I'm hoping if you go back and do this, you should have 30 to 40 things written down on a piece of paper. Now, when I work with for-profit organizations, most often I'm talking to an emergency manager, someone who works in business continuity, someone who's employed to oversee safety and security. They have money, they have resources, they have time. The reason why I say to rank these in order is most often, most often in a house of worship, I'm talking to someone who is a volunteer or someone who is outside of the security world and remember those emotions, they feel stressed, they feel overwhelmed and they're struggling to know where to start. So for us in a house of worship, I say to rank them in order so we can focus on those most probable, what is most likely to occur in Minnesota where I am, it's hurricanes, tornadoes, that type of thing, are most likely to occur. And then we can focus on what are those ones that have the biggest impact. We can then put those towards the top of our list and we can focus them first. One of the reasons um, I said this to an operations director this year, security is a no-end state. I went to a C-suite level meeting, senior executives, and the executive said, Simon, if we do all these things, are we safe? And I said, no, security is a no-end state. You're just safer. So in a house of worship, here's what I'll tell you to do. Identify that risk universe, rank them in order by most likely biggest impact, and start making sure you've got mitigation strategies in place for those. That is why in a house of worship, we rank them in order. So number one was identify your threats, risk universe. The second one is then determine your action steps. So here's when you're going to start writing down the procedures that you want for human response to be. Remember, we're going to focus on that just one bucket about emergency response. That's what we're focusing on. What do we want those humans to do when they are in some type of disaster? Now, here's the thing that I would say. When I look at emergency operations plans for nonprofits, most often, not always, but most often, they are way, way, way too complicated. Now, I have two sons, 9 and 12. My two sons should be able to look at your emergency operations plan and say, this is what I need to do. If they can't, if they can't do that, it is way, way too complicated. So the government uses slogans like see something, say something. They don't often explain to us what the see something is in the say something. And they also give us the run, hide, fight. Why do they do this? Well, they create these simple processes to make it easy. Run, hide, fight, an active shooter. Menu, not an order. I can run to safety if I need. I can fight the assailant if I do not have the option to run or hide. And if I can't run or hide, so if I can't run or fight, I have to hide. I have to hide with a locked door somewhere I can't be seen. Very, very simple instructions. I've seen active shooter plans, which are three, four pages long. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Keep them very simple. Remember, my two sons, nine and 12, they should be able to pick up your emergency operations plan, read it and understand what to do. Here is a test that I would ask you to do. Find someone who is that age and that demographic, give them your emergency operations plan and say, can you read this and explain to me what it is that you need to do? Because most often the plans are too restrictive and they take away either common sense or they force people into a corner 
as to what it is that they need to do. So really, really important. Give those to someone who's under 10, say, read this, do you understand what you need to do? The second thing that I often find about emergency response procedures is that people will write them in isolation. Now, I spent a long time in financial risk compliance, and there's a term about socializing the plan, socializing policies and procedures. Uh, when I was director of risk compliance for the country's largest stock transfer agent, um, or arguably the largest um, stock transfer agent, I reported to the chief risk officer, and before we went into meetings, about a new policy change, about a new procedure, he would say, Simon, have you socialized this with the other leaders? And I would say, yes, I have. And this is what they've said. So why is that important for us in a church? Well, as we're writing policy and procedures, let's make sure we're including the person who's going to implement the plan. We're going to talk to them. Is there anything that you see here that I don't see? Is this the right response plan for you here in the children's ministry? work together with them, socialize the plan, get their views. Because ultimately, if there is some type of disaster, that is the person who is going to execute the plan, not you. You might not even be there. Uh, or you could be in your security operations center, whatever it looks like in your organization, but it'll be the person who is the boots on the ground. So you've really got to socialize the plan with them and discuss the most appropriate response, get them on board before you just write policies and procedures in a vacuum. Now, one of the biggest reasons I found in working with nonprofits, the reason why people don't follow the policies when I go into organizations and they say, hey, we've got a security culture issue here, no one's following. What I find is, is that someone has written those procedures in a vacuum and they haven't consulted the finance director they haven't consulted the student ministry, they haven't consulted the average leader, but they're telling them what to do and they've written it in a vacuum. So that human response is really important. A nine and 12 year old, like my two sons, they should be able to understand it. And please socialize your plan with other leaders who you're writing those plans for, socialize it with them, discuss the most appropriate response because ultimately they are the person who is going to be executing your procedures. Do not write them in a vacuum. Now, the next thing I just want to talk about in the response procedures is having some type of mutual aid agreement. Now, I mentioned earlier about a church which is 249 years old that was burnt to the ground during COVID. So let me ask you a question. If your church was to burn down today, if your church had severe weather and the roof was blown off, if your church had an active shooter and then law enforcement haven't handed back your building, where would your church go? So I'm a real big fan of having mutual aid agreements. They can be informal or formal, depending on your relationship with another church. But I really like to see churches strike agreements to understand, hey, if ever we can't get back inside our building, can we use your church for a period of time? Because here's the interesting thing. At my church, we recently did an active shooter exercise. I think it was 16 people were killed inside the worship center, murdered by an armed gunman. Uh, we did it with the city planners. We did it with local fire. We did it with local law enforcement. And interestingly, during the debrief, I asked the question, if this was to happen in real life, when would you hand the building back to our church? And their answer was very simple. Not until all the witnesses have been interviewed 
to find out what happened inside the church with an armed gunman. So my church, as an example, has 12, 1300 people in there for a Sunday service. We would not get the building back until those 12, 1300 people have been interviewed. So if you feel like, well, we're just going to stream to another location, we're just going to stream. Don't feel like you're going to be able to get back into the church to get to your video room to then stream. Because what we learned to my church was, well, we need to get some more equipment in our second campus. So if we do need to stream to another location, we have the ability to do that. So I'm a big fan of mutual aid agreements. Think about this. Where will you go when emergency strikes? If you cannot use your building during the day or on weekends, who can you partner with so you can continue operations as usual? Remember, in those large deadly force incidents, law enforcement are not going to return the church back to you, meaning you can't get in until they've interviewed all witnesses. So if you feel you're going to be able to just nip in to your recording suite, not likely to happen. So that's mutual aid agreements. The last thing I like to have within this emergency response area is around having a crisis communication plan. Now, creating a media and social media policy will really tee you up for success in the moment of an emergency. So who will speak to the press and what will they say? Making sure that volunteers and staff are aware of their responsibility. What can I say during an emergency? Who is the point of person, point of contact, who's going to stand in front of the press and say, this incident happened, here is our response. I'd encourage you to think about what is your crisis communication plan? Who can speak? What can they say? Is there any authorization needed? And can you sort of start to prepare what some of these statements might be that perhaps you might want to talk to an attorney beforehand to get them greeted? And the reason why I'm going to give you an example now, actually, as to why having a crisis communication plan is so important. Now, I think this is in 2019, when Jack Wilson was at the West Freeway Church, I believe, in Texas in 2019. An armed gunman comes in, um, tragically takes some human life in, inside the worship center. And Jack Wilson uh, was the, the hero that killed the armed gunman on that day. However, he conducted so many interviews post that incident that it was really hard to control what the message is. And I'll give you an example. So it's saying things like an active shoot has happened and the news crews flood down. And they say, Pastor, how was this able to happen today? And the pastor says, I'm sorry that our safety team was unable to stop the active shooter. Not necessarily something that you really want your leader to say, I'm sorry but our safety team was unable to stop the active shooter. Could be accepting some type of liability there. So you want to say things like, at this time, my only comment is to pray for the families of those affected by this tragedy. So you've got the two reverses of a the statement there. You've got someone that says, I'm sorry that we're unable to stop the active shooter. And then the second statement is, at this time, my only concern is to pray for the families of those affected. So again, if I go back to our hero, Jack Wilson, and he is a hero, I don't want to say that he's not a hero, 100% he's a hero. But I've gone online and counted, and he did something like 15 interviews post this incident at, at his church in a matter of 24 hours. So it's really hard to control the message. It's really hard to make sure that the person is representing the church in the right way in case of any type of liability which might come on the church. 
So I'll give you an example. In January of 2022, there was a hostage situation at a synagogue down in Texas where a male entered. He held um, four people hostage for over 10 hours. One of those was including the rabbi. And then eventually the FBI came in, I believe it was, and neutralized the threat. Neutralize the threat for anyone listening in non-enforcement terms means kill the bad guy. They came in and neutralized the threat. But the press were trying to get a hold of the rabbi afterwards for comments. And they released stuff saying like, he declined to speak at length to a reporter outside his home on Sunday. So on one hand, we've got Jack Wilson, who's talking to any news crew, telling them what happened and does 15 out, 15 interviews in a space of 24 hours. Then we've got this rabbi at the synagogue in Texas who was held hostage for 10 hours. The FBI neutralized the threat. They killed the bad guy. The press are trying to get hold of him and he declined to speak at length to a reporter outside his home on Sunday, most likely because he wanted to gather his views as to what he was going to say. And a second news report said something like, the rabbi who was held hostage for nearly 12 hours at his Texas synagogue on Saturday has broken his silence in an emotional Facebook post. So again, it shows you that the press are trying to get hold of him, but they're saying he's broken his silence. He went silent after this incident occurred and did not speak this is really where you need to be. And it's making sure that this is backed up by a crisis communications plan, a social media plan. Who is going to talk? What are they going to say? Can we authorize any statements in advance? If we can't, do we need to talk to an attorney before we make any public comments to make sure we're not accepting um, any liability or likely to cause any reputational risk against the church? The next thing that I want to talk about, and this is often overlooked, is the emotional health. So again, we've been talking about this um, bucket on emergency response. Now, the emotional health of victims or people in your community is really common, really common that a church will say, well, Simon, we've got 10 ministers, we've got 15 ministers, I can do this. But often the emotional health is something that a psychiatrist or a very um, specific counsellor is needed to make sure that the person can recover from the emotional trauma. So as an example, uh, when I last spoke to Frank Pomeroy, the former pastor of First Baptist um, Sutherland Springs, he was saying, Simon, we're now, what, five years on? It's going to be five years now. He said, Simon, people are still being triggered by the incident. Smells locations, words, time of the year. For someone that has gone through such severe trauma, it's a very specific counsellor that is needed to help someone who's gone through that level of trauma. Um, as an example, here in Minnesota, where I reside, believe it or not, a young kid, I think he was 19, 20, asked to see a gun within Shields, which is a sort of a, a um, Cabela's, it's a big sort of um, sports sporting guns, you know, all that type of stuff in there, asked to see a gun, took a magazine from his pocket, loaded the firearm and committed suicide in front of a 19 or 20 year old teller who was on the gun desk. Now, can you imagine that? Someone asked for a gun, they load it and they commit suicide in front of you and you're 19, 20 years old. Severe, severe trauma. So really think about some of these incidents. Who is the person who is going to minister them? It may be, it may be your pastor, 
But a lot of these severe trauma need very, very specific counsellors to really think about who that is and what that looks like. So just a quick recap. Number one was identify all your threats, all your vulnerabilities, write them all down, get them in, get them in a list. Prioritise that list by most likely and then the biggest impact to your church. The reason why we prioritise is most often this is us doing this on our own or with the support of one or two people. We don't have business operations managers. We don't have emergency managers. This is us doing it. So we're going to rank them because security is a no-end state. We're going to focus on the heavy hitters first. The second one then is we're going to really focus on uh, what is the human response for each of these? Looking at how we're going to respond. Remember my nine-year-old, 12-year-old, something simple. People should be able to pick up your procedures and know instantly what to do. And we're going to socialize those plans to make sure that people understand them. We've got the buy-in. The buy-in is really important. Don't just write procedures and then say to someone, here's your plan. Invite them to the table. So we're going to get their buy-in. The third thing that we're then going to do is conduct tabletops and drill exercises to test your plan. And here's what I'm going to say is a little bit different, is test how leaders exercise the plan, not the plan itself. Let me say that again. Test how leaders exercise the plan, not the plan itself. And you might be thinking, yes, Simon, there is some C-suite level. There are some senior executives. There's some managers. I wouldn't want to be involved in making difficult decisions or crucial decisions or those in emergency because they either fluff the handle, they get stressed, they, they make all these wrong, wrong decisions. So by testing how the leaders exercise a plan, most often there isn't always a right way or a wrong way. There's just different ways to work through a crisis. There really is. That's what my experience has really found. And so by assigning a person to assess the performance of those that are making the decisions, You'll be able to know where you can assign roles, who should be in the room, having those delicate, difficult conversations with other leaders to say, you know what, I really don't know if Simon is the best person to be in this um, um, security operations center during these times of crisis because I've noticed that he, he gets wound up, he gets stressed, he, he makes everything 10 times worse and it's difficult to make a decision. So test how leaders exercise the plan. That is where they will get the most growth that is where they will get the most learning is working out, well, how do we exercise the plan that we've got? Because most often there are different ways to draw an incident to conclusion. And like I said, there's not always a right way or wrong way. Sometimes there's, there's really, really wrong ways, but most often there's just different ways to solve a problem. So test how leaders exercise the plan, not the plan itself. Make sure you've got the right people in the room. Uh, something that we did at my church, I mentioned a few moments ago, we did a large-scale exercise. I think there were 16 people that were killed by an active shooter in our worship centre. And that started from us really approaching the city emergency managers, local fire, police and EMS teams and said, hey, we have a 160,000 square foot large building. Uh, we want to test our procedures would you be interested in partnering with us and collaborating with us and doing a large-scale exercise? And you know what they said? Straight away, yes, we would love to because the thing with these local organizations is they don't necessarily get enough practices as what you'd imagine. They need volunteers. They need organizations to come forward and say, we have a large building. Can we work with you? And i tell you what, during that incident, the first police officer through the door was a young female who was most probably 24, 25. And can you imagine being her walking into a 160,000 square foot building 
but she'd not been in before. And someone shouting, beyond gunman, he's downstairs, he's downstairs, he went that way. And her having to engage the person. The time to have been in that building and know the layout was before that armed gunman is downstairs and someone's pointing you in their direction. I mean, I can only imagine the, pr- the pressure. She must have been under in an exercise, never mind what that looks like in real life. So when you're thinking about drills and exercises, don't be afraid to contact your local fire, police and EMS team and emergency planners because they really have a vested interest in not only keeping you safe, you're keeping your congregation safe, but also testing their own teams, the law enforcement, fire and police. They got so much learning themselves by coming into my church and running this exercise. And lastly, when you do drills and exercises and you find these gaps, if you like, vulnerabilities, for our team it was we weren't good enough on scene control. We weren't good enough on closing the doors. We weren't good enough on letting people gain access to our worship centre. So scene control was something that we identified that we needed to work on. And when you do that, please, please, please make sure that you follow through. So the procedures are laid out in real life. But when you practice them, you will find out, well, how does it actually work? So it's in the follow through of the drills, the things that don't work, make sure you're making those changes. So that's a bit of a whistle-stop tour for emergency preparedness. But just to recap the journey that we've been on, number one was identify all your potential emergencies and rank them by most likely. Write down your entire risk universe. Know what you've got. No one could occur inside your organisation. And then the reason why we rank them by most likely is what is most probable, what is most likely to occur, and what could have the biggest impact. You don't have an emergency manager, I'm sure. You don't have a business continuity manager. More than likely, it's you doing this on your own. So you've got to focus on those heavy hitters first. That's why I say rank them in order. Security is a no-end state. You will never be complete with emergency preparedness. So just focus on those which are most likely and the biggest impact to your church. The second one was determine your action sets. Remember I mentioned my two sons, 9 and 12. Yes, they should be able to pick up your emergency operations plan and understand it and know what to do. Do not overcomplicate it. That's the, one of the biggest things that I see from churches across the internet. They either cop, copy and paste something from online, which is way too complex, or what they've written is in that vacuum and they haven't gone to people on the ground, but are going to execute the plan. Keep the steps simple. Make sure you are socializing with the departments and saying, hey, this is the plan we've written for you. Does this seem to work? Is this right? Get their buy and get them on board. And then the third one was conduct tabletop exercises and drills. It's in the testing of your plan, in the testing of your plan, but you will find the vulnerabilities and work out what doesn't work. Please, please, please go back, fill in those blanks and then create that cycle again. So a very introduction, brief introduction to emergency preparedness. I think I've mostly spoken for longer than what I thought I was going to go, but really important subject. I hope you've got something from it. And I hope that this has helped you in some way. And just a quick reminder, if you haven't already, please go to the show notes, grab my free seven-step guide, which is my guide based off my book, Securing Church Operations, which will teach you everything that you need to know to follow a program to be successful. So for now, you have a blessed day and I shall see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Church Security Made Simple podcast. If you're looking for training on how to keep you and your church community safe, or if you're interested in working with me on my five-week group coaching program, please head over to worshipsecurity.org. And if you've enjoyed this podcast episode, 
don't forget to rate and review wherever you are listening. Now, I'll be back with you on the next episode. But until then, stay safe, have a blessed day. And remember, always plan, prepare and protect your ministry. Thank you.